Welcome to the Paradise Paradox. So today I'd like to present an interview to you with my good friend Boba Fett talking about some interesting experiences that he's had over the course of his life. So he starts off giving us a little history, talking about growing up, traveling around, growing up in, in different places like Ireland and, and Singapore as a son of a British intelligence officer. Later, he talks about how he joined the army and they tried to tighten his mind a little bit and squeeze out the creativity and imagination which he previously had and how that helped him learn to recognize brainwashing and propaganda when he encountered it outside the Navy. Later, he joined certain magical organizations such as uh, a Church of Wicca in Australia and also the OTO or Ordo Templi Orientis, the Order of the Eastern Temple. And he talks about the lessons that he learned from them, also about the Church of Scientology, which he was also involved with for some years. So remember, you can follow Bob on Steemit. If you go steemit.com slash at Boba Fett, B-O-B-A-P-H-E-T. You can also check out my new project, which is Cryptonomics, focused on the principles of cryptocurrency and investing. So you can search for that, Cryptonomics on Facebook, Cryptonomics on YouTube, also on Steemit, at Cryptonomics1. So let's get into it. Welcome, Bob. Uh, so Bob is a friend of mine and he's been involved in various unusual organizations over the years. And it's kind of funny because you don't talk about it a whole lot. And you, when I suggested it to you, like talking about it on Steemit or whatever, you didn't seem that interested. It seemed like you thought that people wouldn't, wouldn't be receptive. But I, I think it's more interesting than, uh, than you realize. Yeah. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so tell me, which which of these unusual organizations have you been a member of? Unusual organizations. Um, <laughs> yeah. What's unusual? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's hard to say, but <laughs> some magical organizations and religious organizations. Well, I've always been uh, chasing religion, I guess, just hmm. out of curiosity. Hmm. Uh, I was fortunate enough, like, even as, as a kid, um, I, I tried all the local Sunday schools, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, hmm. Parents weren't into any of it themselves, but they had no problem with me. So I went to watchtower meetings. and I was hmm. always, always sort of looking, always asking questions and um, discovering that no one really had answers. <laughs> um, so the, the bastions of, of the answers weren't really answers. It was just they were just repeating the, the same mantras, if you like. Or hmm. um, Well, it's just, like they had yeah. the words, but they didn't fully comprehend them. Exactly, yeah. They were just regurgitating what, what they'd been told. But with probing questions, it was pretty obvious that they really didn't know. And it hmm. was just awkward for them, I guess, to 
try and explain something that they didn't understand when all they had was a script, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yes. Um, it's like, you know, when you're dealing with a call centre and you deviate from from their script, especially yeah. when it's like technical, like uh, technical support or something for the internet yeah. or whatever, like and they're going off their script and you, you just can't deviate from it. And I found it was exactly the same thing when asking deep probing questions, uh, the philosophy of life. Yeah. So going off the script, they, they were just lost. Right. Yeah, it's really funny too because people can seem very confident when they know what the script is, but as soon as you get off it, th things start to fall apart and you, you see this other face. Yeah, and I got it at school. Was, I mean, on my school reports, it was like, uh, Robert is a distraction in class. It was like, yeah, but yet they can't answer my questions. That, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so did you ever get kicked Even, out of Sunday school? No, but I did. Um, there was not like school reports, but there was like feedback, I guess, you know, because under the age of, what, 12, I guess, up to about 12, is, you know, your, your parents are fed back how, how you went. And it was always the same sort of thing. I was always considered to be disruptive because I just wouldn't accept the status quo answers. And mm. the further I, I probed, the, the further I discovered that no one actually had answers. Mm. Mm. That's interesting too because not a lot of people at, at that age would take the responsibility to seek answers like that. So do you remember oh, what it's you always, always very inquisitive. Mm. Um, I mean, like as a young child, before we came to Australia, I came to Australia in 74 when I was nine years old. And uh, I grew up in places like Singapore. And because both my parents were in, in the Defence Force, I was brought up by a Chinese armour, uh, which is, I guess, what you call a nanny. And so she used to take me to Chinese festivals, street parades. I knew how to use chopsticks before I knew how to use a knife and fork. Oh. And uh, in Ireland, I'd be my grandparents on one side, their property backed onto a large farm. Actually, it was an island, um, it's Island McGee. So it was actually an actual island, is land, island <laughs> off the coast of Ireland. Yeah. And so I used to roam down to the cliffs and walk around there. And I don't have a personal memory of this, but often people say, oh, where's Bobby? And like Nan would be, oh, no, he's out the back playing with a wee folk, as if it was just a common type thing for her. Yes. And, um, I have very, very little memories, I guess, now of that. Right. But the you don't remember anything about the wee folk? No. No, I don't. <laughs> um, in the Navy, I, uh, I did an apprenticeship as an electrician and even in, in training there with that learned like basics like Ohm's law or whatever mm. and uh, how jet electricity is generated with a stator and a rotor spinning and you taught the basics and I'd ask questions but how does that work I don't understand mm. why if, if it you know, if it gets spinning it, it starts producing less speed why does it stop spinning why does it have to and people could never actually give me answers I was never satisfied with, with the status quo answers at, at any point as far back as I can remember in any hmm. endeavour I've looked into. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's funny. I guess that reveals something about modern culture, like people are satisfied with, you know, well, this works, so I guess I'll go with that. <laughs> exactly, yeah.
Yeah. <laughs> so you you were in the navy. How long were you in the navy? Nine years. I joined fifteen and three quarters, which was the the minimum age. And even then, I think that was an act of rebellion. Uh, Dad was in the army, British intelligence. Uh, Mum was in the air force as a nurse. So my career options were pretty much limited to three from the onset. And I think just you know, even then, joining the navy was an, an act of rebellion. <laughs> really? So if you if you joined the army, then you would have been following in Dad's footsteps, but. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> fair enough. It's funny, I guess, how how narrow rebellion can be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it it would would probably even in my mindset at the time, I wouldn't have even considered it rebellion. This right. is in hindsight, looking back. But okay. uh, why didn't I follow Dad's footsteps or follow Mum's footsteps? Why did I join the navy? Mm. Um, allergic to seafood and joined the navy, so. Mm. So what were the lessons that you learned during your time in, in the Navy? Like, did you learn any spiritual lessons or things that uh, things that you still carry with you that you think are important? It helped me break through the matrix as far as brainwashing was concerned. Hmm. Uh, like, for example, I mean, we're talking the 80s, okay? So no mobile phones, no internet. Well, technically, our ships used to have something called ship-to-shore communication, mm. which hindsight was pretty much broadband internet, mm. but that wasn't available for personal use. That was, you know, a top-level type thing. But yeah. at sea, we would have, uh, when we pull into a port somewhere, there'd be like bags of mail, you know. Someone wanted to communicate with you, they actually had to write you a letter and post it. And for mm. at sea, for a while, we'd have mail drops by helicopter or something like that. But oh. while we were actually at sea, there was um, something called ship's daily orders and it came out every day. It's an A4 piece of paper with probably 10 to 12 bullet point bits of information and that was all you knew about what was going on in the world outside of what was going on on the ship. That's all you knew. Like, 12 wow. bullet point pieces of data. So at any particular point, if you're given some new information, uh, okay, this has happened, you just accept it. This is, right. why, why would they lie? You <laughs> 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 um, yeah, no way of, no alternative yeah, Why would source. they lie to a bunch of people out at sea who have no means of defending themselves intellectually? <laughs> exactly. Mm. And so having that tight a control of information when I got out of the Navy and recognised things through, especially you know, the, the TV at the time. Um, I mean, as a kid, when I grew up, like the TV shows, initially in Australia, um, so late 70s, because it was 81 when I joined the Navy, Australian TV culture was very heavily influenced at the time by English culture. Hmm. So all the show, uh, Doctor Who, The Goodies, yep. um, The Man of Bourne, uh, it was all England, Benny Hill, Kenny Everett. And then at some point during the 80s, it transitioned to American culture. And uh -huh. at the time, it was like, and we would be watching something. And see, I think the first American show that really sort of came to light on TV was um, The Carol Burnett Show. It was a comedy. Uh, and it was canned laughter, and like with, it was that was a new thing to, to the 
hand laughter seemed to be an American cultural thing. Mm. Uh, like the Benny Hill show and stuff, it was actual real people laughing, you know. <laughs> and I was saying, you know, we watched these shows and they would say something not even remotely funny and then you get this canned laughter and we're all just like looking at each other going, what? <laughs> just <laughs> no idea. But gradually over time and the conditioning of shows like McHale's Navy, Hogan's Heroes, uh-huh. Vic Morrow's Combat, um, all very pro-American, post-World War II propaganda type shows. Yeah. And even the cartoons back then, like Bugs Bunny, um, Looney Tunes and all those, you look at them back now, they, they were sexist, they were racist. <laughs> uh, like it was incredible like that. And as kids being brought up with cartoons or that kind of thing, yeah. uh, I suppose, and then like the other side of the coin to like cartoons, have you heard of uh, Captain Pugwash? Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, it wasn't even a cartoon. It was just like cut out sort of movie things. Right. Captain like Pugwash. Or something. Was a, yeah, and uh, it was a tugboat and um, the crew members were like semen stains and master baits. <laughs> on the <tugboat>. Really? <laughs> True. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember there was you remember Super Ted? No. No? Okay. Maybe no. that was after your time, I guess. But in that that was uh, no. that was a cartoon in the eighties and they had like the the bad guy was like Texas Pete or something, this angry cowboy, and his sidekick was uh, an effeminate skeleton. So uh I remember reading it from from the author of the of the original books, he said, well, we'd never get past, you know, these days having a gay skeleton as a, as a bad guy. It would never work. <laughs> but, well, I grew up in the era with Noddy and, and Big Ears and like, uh, Gollywogs, who all the bad yeah. guys in Toyland were the Gollywogs. Yeah, and but they I, changed I, them to goblins in the TV I had show. a Gollywog, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you've got now young Noddy living with um, the old uh, you know, Big Ears and... Like, like <laughs> is it a, Noddy and Big Ears a gay couple? Is that what you're getting at? <laughs> well, like Noddy was like a young boy and, and Big Ears like an old grandpa sort of type figure, <laughs> but they lived together. Um, okay. Like sugar daddy sort of type thing. I don't know. <laughs> but Big Ears was like that. a gnome. They're like, oh, well, that's even worse. They're like an interspecies <laughs> relationship. <laughs> and Sesame Street, like Bert and Ernie, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. like yeah. No, I remember some someone from Henson Studio or whatever commented saying, "Bert and Ernie are not gay; they are puppets. They do not have genitals. <laughs> you know, they're just roommates. That's innocent enough." <laughs> and even um, like later in teens, like in Australia, the um, Hey Hey It's Saturday with Ozzy Ostrich. It was multi-tiered. There were there's a level of humor for the kids that were watching, but uh-huh. being aware, you know, mums and dads are quite often watching the show as well. Because it's Hey Hey Saturday used to be a morning show, not a night show mm. originally. But it just got so blase, it got so close to the bone that it, it became an evening show and it was focused then more to <sighs> the parents' humor than it was originally to the kids' humor. You know, they'd be yeah. watching, I'd be laughing at some things and mum and dad would be laughing at something totally different and I'd be going, like, what's so funny? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, it was a very, very mishmash signals, 
guess, being brought up as yeah. far as what shaping reality and, and what was real and what wasn't real, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I remember just one last example on that point. I remember they had the, this uh, on Saturday or Sunday mornings, they had the Looney Tunes show and it was hosted by this young woman, Katrina Roundtree. And on one episode, she said, oh, so it turns out that the demographic of this show is uh, 22 to 25-year-old males. And so <laughs> so how are you doing? And then someone called in and... and uh, she was like, so what are you wearing? <laughs> and I, I was like 12 years old and watching this like, what the hell is going on? And the guy's like, uh, I'm wearing my pajamas. <laughs> it was all very, very bizarre. Back to the main point. So after There's being... A at, sorry? There's a point. Uh, it's a, we'll find a point eventually. But you said being in the Navy, you realise... Or once once you got back to shore, you realised that information could be manipulated like that. So so that made you more wary of it, I guess. Yeah. In fact, that recalling now, that was even a sidetrack from your original question as far as understanding. Uh-huh. Before yeah. I got into Navy, uh, as a, a young child, pre prepubescent sort of days, I was very very um, tuned in, I guess, to outside of matrix type vibrations. Uh, the kids that I chose to play with at the time at that age, we played a lot with imagination. We, 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 you know, we would play out the characters off of a TV show or something like that and magic played a huge, huge part in my childhood and uh, everything had to rhyme when we were doing things like and If it rhymed, it was magic. If you wanted to make magic, it had to rhyme. It wasn't like childish play, that was a belief, believed yes. in that firmly. I mean, yes. used to astral project as a child. Um, How so? I, was, I was sort of a very strict upbringing type thing where like when the adults came over, it was time for bed. Um, mm. You know, the adults are talking type thing. You know, after mm. bed you go. And so, you know, I'd go to bed and I'd just lie down and relax a bit and then I'd just pop out and go back into the land room and just watch and paying attention. I could never actually understand you know, why were they sending me to bed when I could just come out and be aware of what's going on anyway. Hmm. And there were a lot of experiences like that. I just didn't realise that other people couldn't do. Uh. And that really was conditioned out of me yeah. in my times in the Navy. It was like a backward step. I became very much a, a cog in a machine through the conditioning, peer pressure. Um, I mean, when you're on a ship at sea, like, for example, the kind of ships I was on, we had a crew of probably around about the 200 mark, and it was a very tight fit, right, wrong view, especially I, I worked on, on weapon systems, guided missile systems, torpedo tubes. Um, uh, my... my even though I worked on gun systems and missiles, my main area was ASW or anti-submarine warfare. So, sorry, anti-submarines. ASW anti-submarine warfare, so torpedo right. tubes. Um, and in fact, the ICARA missile system at the time was a missile that we used to fire that carried a torpedo. So, if you had say a patrol boat or a helicopter with sonar, uh, like Sea Kings used to drop this sonar thing into the water for tracking. 
So, and patrol boats had sonar, so a lot of things had the capability to detect submarines, but not the ability to attack. So from a long distance away, we would fire the ICARA missile. The missile would go to the vicinity of the sonar contact and drop a torpedo into the water. There's the Mark 44 and Mark 46 torpedoes. Once the torpedo entered the water, salt water would go in for the inlets, activate the, the batteries, and it would actually start its own search and destroy cycle. So that's the kind of stuff that I used to work on. There's just not a lot of room for outside of electrical equations, I guess. So okay. anything that fit into that. And, of course, you know, the, the peer environment is um, very hardcore military as well. So anything that just didn't fit into that was just not in the scope of reality. And, I mean, I joined was 50. I mean, my first ship that I was on as crew, I was still 17 years old. So these are the formative years of your life when you're, you're shaping your reality. And I already had a reality that didn't really fit in with that. And mm. something had to give because I, I had two realities that were not compatible. And yeah. without exposure to what I was exposed to before joining the Navy, just like anything, your, your reality is shaped by your observations and so, or what you were told. In fact, quite often now, your, your reality is what you're being told goes completely against your observations. And um, there's right. a, a huge like, a cognitive dissonance sort of angle in that where you're told something and it, it just doesn't fit and it causes this um, kind of recognition that something's wrong and you just... At, when you reach the point where you have to ditch what is observable and what you believe to accept what you need to accept to function within the peer network that you're in. It's, um, yeah, it's a very strange transition. Yes. Well, I think I know what you're driving at there. Yeah, good. Maybe you can say that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when you, when you left the Navy and, and got back to regular society, were you like institutionalized? I mean, were you so dependent on, on the Navy systems that you didn't know how to navigate? Or? No. Um, I think I, you see it and you hear it a lot. People, like 20, you know, people have done 20 years or something like that. They've done the parts the, for the pensions about thing. And yeah, they just really can't function. But I was amazed by getting into, because one of the first jobs I had when I got out of the Navy, I actually got into sales. Mm. And the reason... For that was because as a weapons technician, even though I was as qualified as an electrician in the Navy, had it, uh, outside was uh, equivalent was electrical fitter mechanic with a New South Wales trade equivalent. Um, but the equipment that I was working on, like I could have worked on to the mining industry, because uh, another part of it, as well as electrical work, also the systems used to use a lot of hydraulics, obviously, you know, mm. spinning around it large gun turret, and we use synchros and mag slips for communicating between radar systems to weapon platforms and so forth. And there just wasn't a lot of use of that in civilian life outside of that. And so I got into sales, and I think that that really helped me understand a new way of deciphering or interpreting how other people thought, because sales is 
or, and back then with, with sales, we're talking like Alan Peace type yeah. hot button selling, uh, old school sales, not oh, okay. custom, like, like pr- sales learn to manipulate, learn to push them. Yeah, I mean, for me to win, you've got to lose. You know, right. it's like, oh, I got him, I got him. You know, you have to have a say, yeah, high five. Yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. We get yeah. that sucker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wood ducks and, and all that kind of thing. Mm. So, um, recognizing that people's re- interpretation of what was going on was very, very shallow. Mm. They didn't look that deep into it. Whereas what I was focused on with my was a very small field, but intensely focused. So mm-hmm. I started leaking that intensification of a narrow bandwidth out into a wider bandwidth of what was going on around me. And it was like a mathematical equation of algebra that just didn't add up. Like Let's, every- uh, can you elaborate on that? What do you mean you had a, you had a small, a, a narrow but intense focus? What do you, what do you mean? So as a technician, um, oh, okay. especially for example, nowadays everything's designed to be thrown away, but if we had, I mean, transistors, for example, printed circuit boards that we have, this was new technology, like yeah. uh, uh, MOSFETs, transistors, three-way type solid state. We, our mm-hmm. amplifier cabinets, our weapon systems use CT valves. Right. Um, so like vacuum tubes. Yeah. 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 Like old school okay. TVs. Yeah. And so if something broke down, we would have to like pull out um, like a sort of big tray, had all these valves in it mm-hmm. and printed circuits and we would do a fault finding test with um, meters, you know, bolt, mm-hmm. voltage tests, current tests, and yep. we would test through the board until you found the faulty component. It might have been a resistor or a capacitor. And then with a the soldering iron, you'd remove that component and you'd put the new one in. So formulas were and what we were working mathematically in a logic system. Again, digital logic, three-way functioning as opposed to simple, basic on-off was very new technology at the time. So mathematical formula was, was what you worked on. If this, then that, always, mm. like, like basic level programming. Yep. Who, when you got out into a world where it didn't add up as you know, when, you, when you're fault finding and you go, wow, there's, there's, there's 12 possibilities here, not just one or two, but the general consensus around me, because society is very dichotomous, people worse that no, there's only two. I go, but no, there's, there's, there's lots. So I got out of the Navy in 1990, so early 90s, it was very. Um, right and wrong, you know, my way or the highway type, you know, you've got to fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, and assimilation too. But back then, I mean, even Time magazine, their title was you know, White Australia for White Australians or something like that. I'm not sure what year they removed that from their magazine. But um, it's like, you know, all these new slogan. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and okay. focus like Kings, Kingswood Country, comedy on, on TV at the time. Yeah. Um, uh, money on the fridge, wog, when you, when you buy a beer type thing. Um, it was like these new Australians coming and have to fit in, they have to assimilate. Multiculturalism mm. was, was not a thing then. It was like, you come mm. here, you've got to fit. It was like a country full of Pauline Hansons. Um, that was the, <laughs> the mindset. 
at the time. It's very, right. very dichotomous. You know, if this is right and you disagree, you're wrong. But, and I just realized, but they're fault finding technical mindset, looking at things, well, no, there's, there's actually, there's a lot of shades of gray here. There's, there's lots <laughs> of different ways, but that was unacceptable. Yeah. And that was yeah. probably the area I had the most trouble fitting into with conventional society in that mm. I just couldn't accept two dichotomies, like the dichotomy of, of the options given to me. Yeah. I mean, me with a false dichotomy, it wasn't even like reality was presented as a false dichotomy right. at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To think outside of that, you were dangerous. You were um, to be uh, suspicious. Suspicious people were very suspicious of you if you didn't fit into that right wrong. And again, because that whole generation uh, they were brought up too uh, in that well, my, my parents started in World War Two. Um, again, people were very limited as far as the information that was presented. So I guess I, I got into the uh, through, through sales through various stages, insurance, um, mobile phones, computers. I got my first 486 computer and that really, like, I, wow, this is amazing. I want to get into this. I was on the internet with 14.4 kilobit per second dial-up modem yeah. um, before, like, anyone else my age was, like, even, yeah, I, I didn't <laughs> know anyone my age that, that had a computer. Yeah. So yeah. Um, a huge gap in difference of age group was my peer network at the time. So I was surviving with the, a younger generation that wasn't stuck in the same paradigm that, that my generation was stuck in. So I oh, guess true. that probably did me as well. But what happened with the internet was the, because before then your information came from TV and newspapers. That mm. was pretty much it. So it was now the advent of the internet and a whole avenue of more information because you could no longer control information what i then had to start dealing with was sifting through disinformation and mm. disinformation was something we were taught in the navy uh, you were taught that. about it or you or people gave you <laughs> people fed you disinformation a bit of both um, okay sneakily too in the fact that we were taught to be aware of disinformation particularly like for, for example when we were on tour I want to say until when we we're on um, on a trip or something, when we left port, we had a, a vague idea of where we were going, what we were going, and but most of it wasn't revealed until we were actually out there. But then you'd pull into somewhere like Singapore or Manila or Thailand, and all the market stalls at the wharf where you pulled into would be selling the leather jackets, and on the back of the jacket were all the ports, not only where you've been but where you're going as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, yeah. So uh, you, you can't sort of like ring home and, and tell your family where you're going, but the, the locals you know, in the countries we're going to are selling merchandise for all this information on it. And, wow, that's, uh, that's must have been really surreal. But where did they get the information? Exactly. So it sort of opened up the fact that all the information that we were getting was not all of the information. Hmm. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I always think about how when when I was in high school, they would show us propaganda and it would be like Cold War era propaganda or communist or anti-communist propaganda from 
50s, 60s, 70s. And one thing they never did is, is tell us about, tell us that the, just the idea that propaganda could exist today. <laughs> they never yeah. made that point clear. <laughs> yeah. And that was what was so, it was because it wasn't so heavily conditioned, like instead of an A4 piece of paper with bullet points, there were three different options with the news, you know, Channel mm. 7, Channel 9 or Channel 10. Actually, even mm. back then, I think Ch T Channel 10 wasn't even around. It was just Channel 7 and Channel 9. Right. Um, so uh, a false presentation of choice was very obviously to me actually the same source. Yeah. And, but I also recognised that this was not obvious to my peers at the time as well. Mm. So that the heavy brainwashing conditioning within the Defence Force helped me recognise that lighter level, it was like you know, Diet Coke equivalent of brainwashing that existed in, in civilian street as opposed to the level that we got in the Defence yep. Force. The, well, the purpose of this interview was to ask you, after you know, getting that background, to ask you about the uh, about the magical and religious organisations. So you were a member of, uh, you told me the the OTO and the, the Australian Church of Wicca, and also Scientology. So which which one came first? It's actually very interesting um, how things layer in steps. When I was doing my basic training at Narimba, which is out in the western suburbs of Sydney, New South at Blacktown Way, I was introduced unwittingly or unknowingly at the time to Scientology through a couple of girls. What when I say girl, I was 15, 16 at the time. They would have been in their young 20s. But they used to like hang around out at the shops that near the OBS attempting to sort of like get their feelings, feelers into the young moldable minds. Right. And they had a hairdressing salon. And okay. so I was I actually made friends with them quite early. I had no idea like what Scientology was about. And even initially that they were even in Scientology until it was like there was a, a, an announcement official sort of notice from the base like these two ladies are of unwitting character they are not to be approached not to be communicated with if either of these attempt to communicate with you you must advise your next uh, superior officer immediately uh, <laughs> and so that ended there so I, it didn't actually go anywhere okay and so it didn't pique your interest in, in make you want to you know no. sneak out and talk to them no okay but, and <laughs> we'll go back fill in the gap later but I'm going to jump right ahead now. In the 2000s or so at my time in Scientology in Perth, I actually bumped into, so this is like oh. 20 years later, <laughs> bumped into her again. She was actually just visiting the Perth Org when I was at the Perth Org, uh, okay. or organisation. Um, each, each of their branches are referred to colloquially within as orgs. Right. It's like and, a church. Uh, like yeah, and she actually remembered me. In fact, I can even remember her name, her full name. We'll just, just go with her first name, which was Sandra. Uh -huh. And uh, she quick. She was quick to sort of point out, wow, didn't what a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> you're meant to be. You're meant to be here, you know. We couldn't couldn't sort of pull it off yeah, last time. Well, and now here you are type thing. Yeah. But, uh, so did you going, say you first met her in New South Wales or in Yes. Perth? 
in New, New South, South Wales. Wales. Uh, and then you met her later in Perth. Wow. Okay. Yes. Very interesting. Yeah, Twenty years later or something. Hmm. Yeah. Whilst still in the Navy, my first rekindling of, I guess, spiritual flame was probably my last 12 months when it was time to, because after I, I did nine years and most people, because that was the minimum period for an apprenticeship, most people that do nine years usually do stay on the extra year and do 10 to get you three months long service equivalent. Mm. But um, I was so ready to, to get out. I, I wasn't interested. Fair enough. Um, a few things, I guess, happened during that 12 months. In that time with you know, nine years ahead of you, there's this feeling, the subconscious feeling of trapped or overwhelmed which just doesn't allow your mind to, to explore that, that further. But mm. now the point, there's only 12 months left. I, I guess my inner growth was able to leak out a bit more to the point where I started being able to see things that I couldn't previously see or recognize like with a scotoma. Now you set a goal, okay, um, yeah. I want a, a new blue BMW 323i. And all of a sudden you start seeing blue 323w yep. everywhere. Oh, yes. yeah. They start to manifest. No, it's just your filters now allowed that to come in because, you know, we can only process this one-tenth of the data that we actually receive for our senses. Mm-hmm. So it's a filtering system that determines what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, which is why goal setting really works. People who set goals get what they want because that filter is, is instead of you getting a random yeah, get tuned in. what's available. Exactly. Mm. So I started coming out more and more and a friend recommended a, a psychic for a tarot reading. In fact, even in uh, my last year, we were, I was in um, a, a ship. The Navy base in Sydney is actually basically at King's Cross in Willamaloo. So um, after okay. a night out, we were <laughs> to get off, off at King's Cross train station to walk to the Navy base. Right. All sorts of local things you know, back there in the 80s in King's Cross. Yeah. And um, there was a, a psychic on the footpath there with the crystal ball that took a particular interest in me and she used to give me free readings and I'd, I'd buy her a coffee type thing. Yeah. Um, and we'd sit, we would talk for hours. Um, and so I, that was a, like a, a stepping stone to, to expansion as well. And then when I got out of the Navy, um, actually even before then, still back posted in Perth, this friend rec- recommended this psychic and I went to and she actually was a high priestess of uh, a, quite a large, probably one of the, the largest organised covens, I guess you would say, in Perth. Mm-hmm. And so we started, we formed a friendship um, in, in that area there. And to the point where I was actually initiated into the coven whilst I was still in the Navy. Um, oh. I didn't go to my second degree initiation until I got out of the Navy, but I was already a, a practicing witch. Hmm. Um, because so it's, it's quite it's structured. Like well, sometimes when I think of Wicca, I, I just imagine, well, people just, you know, hang out and do some rituals and stuff. But you're saying this, there's like levels to it, like like in Freemasonry or, or Scientology or something. This particular one, yes. Um, right. But, you know, I mean, anyone could like call themselves a, a high priestess, I guess, or a witch, mm. and you go and join them and it, it's just, you know, a couple that that's their way of having their social life is to get people to come over and and play play woogie woogie for the weekend or something. Play dress ups. <laughs> yeah, dress ups. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but this this was oh, like legit cool. uh, yeah. a traditional hereditary line of of succession of initiation. Oh. Uh, 
I mean, we used to work with full moon rituals were done. Scott was referred to in their craft as sky clad, so which is naked. So we would all be naked uh-huh. doing rituals full of full moon and, and, and so forth, whilst uh-huh. still Navy. Um, in fact, even whilst in the Navy, another thing that came out was in the Navy was I was playing D&D, Dungeons and Dragons, with a, <laughs> a very small group of people. And, well, it was secret to the point like, <laughs> didn't talk. And when we went to play D&D, we had to be careful where we went. Yeah. Uh, and as, as a weapons technician, there were areas of the ship, classified areas that we could go to that weren't open to the rest of the crew. But one particular place we did was inside a radar dome. And, okay. Uh, so with radars, you have... To operate a radar, there's uh, a key in the bridge. So when you're doing maintenance on it, you go to the bridge and you take that key hmm. and you keep it on your person like, so they can't actually operate the radar without the key. Ah, right. As a so, yeah, we, one of us would just go and get the key and, and we'd, we would we'd play Dungeons and Dragons inside a radar dome, you know, the, the spheres that the radar spins around inside of. Uh, the M22 radar was one of them. But, yeah, and... and compartments like that within the ship. But, uh, yeah, well, that's it's, it's kind of funny. I guess, you know, it's kind of a joke because you can see, like, these old uh, chick tracks where, where they're saying, oh, these uh, kids are playing this demonic game pretending to be wizards or something. On another level, I, th- I think that uh, there's probably a big connection between role-playing and, and real magic. Yes, like, totally. Trying to get into the character... Of, of it's, something it's else. Working your imagination like a muscle. Mm. Now you go to the gym and you work a muscle, your imagination is exactly the same way. So mm. imagine games like that yeah. do work your psychic, lack of a better word, uh, muscle. Mm. So you never got found out for playing D&D? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's so, one good thing we're yeah. very good at in the Navy. Uh, <laughs> Like drugs, for example, there's a very, very good reason why the Defence Force do not have compulsory drug tests. <laughs> very good reason. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, you wouldn't have much left of the Defence Force. Right. And especially in the 80s, you know, we were going to places like you know, Thailand. And, and In fact, I'm pretty sure I, I shared a story with you about yeah. Thailand. Probably yeah, about accidentally buying a, a pound or whatever. <laughs> But before I was, and it was actually uh, a girlfriend from Melbourne who was like, before I met her, I was very, very hardcore straight military man. Like my view, you know, drugs are bad, okay, um, mm. conditioning type thing and, like, I initially didn't get on with her because someone brought it to my attention that, that she, she smoked weed. I was like, nah, nah, nah she couldn't, no, no, no. I was like, oh, she, right. she does. Um, yeah. But I'd, I'd probably known her for about a year before I actually I had had a smoke. Hmm. Um, and then through my relationship with her and her friends, and she re, like, I guess the best way, reintroduced me to people that I already knew hmm. uh, from a different light. So, it, within the name, like if you're not in that clique, you've got no idea. And if someone had asked, walked up and said, Hey, are there drugs in the Defence Force? I would have given you a straight no. 100% convinced belief 
And again, this is what Ablis is like. What changed? Did the external reality change? No, just what was available to me, information changed. Which, and then yeah. as a result of that, the entire external world changed. Oh, shit, three quarters of the ship are on drugs. Um, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, so you don't know if you, if you don't know. And there's, there's too many stories just on that alone that we, we, we really couldn't go into on yeah. here. But it's like if you're not part of that tight network, you actually don't know that it exists. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and there again, could be these symbols or codes right in your face, but you never know. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so then we take that a step out to... The, the realm of conspiracy nuts, you know, oh, the Illuminati and Bilderberg. And, mm. and it's so funny, like, you, you go back 10 years to a conspiracy at the time, it's common knowledge now. But yeah, if you Bilderberg believe Bilderberg was, was that, nobody really believed in Bilderberg. Yeah. Things, you know. And every, every year, something new comes out that you're a complete nut job to believe in as mm. another year drops off that it used to be nutty to believe in, but now it's okay. Hmm. I mean, I remember Nexus magazine in the early 90s talking about, like, you know, microchipping and, and that kind of thing, and it was, like, absolutely ridiculous to entertain that notion. But hmm. now it's good for you. Oh, yeah, it's hmm. good. Protect you from the terrorists, you know. It's like <laughs> a complete mindset of change. Pearl Harbor, you know, the conspiracy of the day, but now it's, it's for release of information that's accepted. Yeah, it was, it was manufactured. The, yes. Uh, all the stuff that the conspiracy theories come up that people get laughed at at the time when it comes out, 10 years later, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, you know, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But it's yeah. still, it's kind of strange because sometimes there there are things which should be established as fact and you have these, and it seems like there are fewer and fewer people like these hardcore skeptics and they say, well, I, I thought false flags were just a fairy tale or something. And you're like, well, have a look at this, you know, rice tag. Just have a look. <laughs> it's right there. It's the black yeah. white of Wikipedia. You know, you don't hashtag know. rock tag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Little steps like that, when, when recognizing that there is a reality beyond the reality that you see, but you just don't know what to look for. Hmm. But once you know what to look for, it's there in front of your eyes. You just didn't see it before. And yeah. lots of synchronistic meetings with people being in the, I guess what you call at the right place at the right time synchronistically. Hmm. But my, my universe was expanding exponentially in the first 12 months of me getting out of the Navy. Hmm. Uh, and a lot of it was just reuniting and memories. Like I, I would remember stuff from my childhood that the Navy basically conditioned out of me. Wow! Don't forget that. Um, wow, that's that's so cool because uh, I mean it's it's messed up, but it's also cool because it's like he who controls the present controls the past. <laughs> mm. Yeah, extreme like disciplinary wise, extreme consequences of not fitting in and not believing that the status quo within the defence force that mm. didn't exist to such a tight degree outside of. Like, it was okay to to not go with the flow. There were consequences, like socially, but there were not disciplinary actions against that, unless you go too far. Like I said to you before, our society is like railroad tracks, you know. Mm. You've got a little bit of buffer zone either side of the track that you can 
go, but if you go too far one way, they come for you in blue uniforms. And if you go too far the other way, they come for you in white uniforms. But either way, they come for you if you go too far from, from those, if you go yeah. too far from the train track. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. When you're in that in the coven in Perth and you're you're still in the Navy, you said, so were, were you having some kind of cognitive dissonance? Was it hard for you to wrap your head around it? Did you resist at first or what, what was the experience? Okay, I'll share the, a story that would probably cover that analogistically, if that's such mm-hmm. a word. If it's not, I've just invented it. <laughs> I'll be right, 2018, Boba Fett. And <laughs> we had um, an exercise. Uh, exercise is the Navy term for going out playing war games, okay? Uh, scheduled that we were to go on that conflicted. Um, it was my first national conference, Wicca conference, I think it was 89, pretty sure it was. And our coven were traveling, it was a national convention, and it was hmm. in Adelaide. And three of us um, drove, we filled the car, so we each had a car load, but, and I had a, um, a BK Commodore at the time. We drove to Adelaide for this conference. But when the date came, because I was still in the Navy, I didn't get out of the Navy till 1990. Yeah. At the time that it was coming up, I, I booked leave so that I could could go. Of course, the Navy didn't know what, what was happening. Yeah. But I was just at that point, again, not, not long ago now, I was caring less and less, I guess, what other people thought, but mm. still being aware of, of the, the disciplinary sort of aspects of you know, how far you can go. Mm. And anyway, um, we failed um, a particular exercise type thing in um, post-refit conditioning. So after ship's been in refit, you go out and you've got to test everything and you know, play silly buggers with, with um, other navies and things like that. And we failed on points. So we had to do it again. So all leave was cancelled. And... I, I put in, because when it's something important, like I, you can have a, you write a letter to the commanding officer through your divisional officer to request for special circumstances leave. And okay. I thought at this point, fuck it, got nothing to lose. And I said, I'm, I'm going over for a national Wicked Group conference. <laughs> and like, it, it actually, it was like, what's Wicker? And there's all these questions. And yeah. anyway, as it turned out, um, one of the boilers, um, steam, like, steam turbines one of the boilers broke down okay. um, like three or four days before we were supposed to go off on, on our exercise so the exercise we couldn't go so oh. my leave was suddenly approvable again so i put in leave and i was called up to the division officer and interviewed about simply because on my original application i said why well, i wanted to go it was like what is wicker what's this and what's that and, and yeah. asking questions and um, just we had to do some some daily thing because it was only like. But what did you tell him? I'd get into that. Yeah. All right. So sure. the, <laughs> um, once the the boiler was fixed, we'd miss the actual day. We went out. We had to do something for a day, and the base naval police came on board, and I was called up to the quartermaster's office, and so in the middle of a weapons trial, the weapons technician was what they call landed, in other words, taken off the ship. Uh-huh. So 
division, like weapons electrical engineering officer was not happy about this. Like they've got to go to sea for a day without a weapons technician to test the weapon systems. And so he was really pushing, he was like, no, we need this, this guy. Like this is, this is the weapons testing stage. And so, oh, no, this is high level security. So they took me off the ship and uh, I had to have an interview with the base security officer. <laughs> and I mentioned some books, I think, like Gerald Gardner, I think, Witchcraft Today, or the Stuart, Janet and Stuart Farrar and a couple of things. And they asked me questions like, you know, consciousness, like sort of questions from a, a complete level of ignorance. And I said, <laughs> like, and so I was saying, like, living things have consciousness, blah, blah, blah. And the security officer was like, so, so this telephone, does this telephone have consciousness? Like, seriously, like, no, just couldn't, like, trying to comprehend what I was saying. I said, no, no, that telephone doesn't have a consciousness, like, type thing. Yeah. Now, and, now uh, would you say that? Would? <laughs> I, I'm yeah, kind of a no, grey yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Inanimate, animal, it, it's all at a, a submolecular level. It's all consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. But my understanding <laughs> at the time, I mean, I would have been 23, 24, I guess, at this point, and um, new to, to uh, I, I'd, I was a first degree initiate within within the craft, but uh, still you know, rediscovering, I guess at this point, even things that I'd known before getting the Navy that had been brainwashed out of me. And uh, so because I wasn't allowed on the ship, uh, so I was working on the maintenance staff on the shore base at the time. And this particular petty officer that I was assigned under was asking a lot of questions uh, about what I was doing. and. It came out like, like um, you, you realise that the only path to salvation is through Jesus. And some of my mates, we, we would joke about that sort of thing. I just like laughed, you know. <laughs> and, oh, shit, he's serious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I was under the command of this born-again Christian. Oh, okay. Bear in mind, even, even back then, born-again Christian, like the whole Baptist, that was considered a cult. It wasn't as mainstream as it is now. Well, which church like, was it? Or was it non-denominational or what? Um, I don't know. I didn't, didn't okay, explore that. But, but, like, it was, it was the, or, I mean, back then it was like Baptist wasn't even, it was like the born again. You know, yeah. Speaking in tongues, like, they were just a cult just as weird as, as any other cult. And yeah. it was strange to me. But because it had the Christian flavour, it was acceptable. Okay. Hmm. So I'm actually... Uh, under the supervision of a, a Christian cultist uh, <laughs> yeah. because of my non-Christian cultist beliefs. In fact, let's jump right back again. When I first joined, so at 15 years, when I'm doing my basic training over at uh, HMS Narimba, New South Wales, I remember, like, because church was compulsory on a Sunday, you had a choice of Protestant or Catholic, but okay. under basic training at that age, you had to go to church on a Sunday. And I remember, like, I, I chose the Protestant because it seemed less weird at the time. Priests were less less creepy <laughs> to a fifteen year old boy and the Protestants than because honestly, their, their Catholic priest was creepy as fuck. <laughs> like, honestly, like I, I knew nothing about like that whole sort of side of it at the time. But we we were all like fucking. None of us wanted to be in the same room with the Catholic priest. Let me tell you, and wow. we, you know, not knowing what we. The story is now, he was just creepy as fuck. Yeah. But so I chose Protestant for that reason. 
they're always pushing for confirmation. You know, what, come, come, come for confirmation, come for confirmation. That, that wasn't compulsory, but we, we actually had to, to go. Okay. And uh, I remember, like, the hymns. And, like, you know, it's like, and at 15, it like, hit me as, like, they're all promoting the fact that God is on our side. Okay. Sounds fair. You know? It's like, so we're, we're a military force. I mean, ah, I see. On on the side of the military, not on your like personal side. side. Yeah, I see. Plus, come a task with the police and so forth. Like the military is there for one thing; it's, it's to break things and kill people. Um, it's like mm. how, and yet we got to go to church and we we pray. To, but God's on our side, and all the hymns were praising God for being on our side. And yeah. we're thinking, like, what about the other side? Do, do they worship the same fucking God. You know, it's like, <laughs> it, it, messed with my head even then. I think it just doesn't make any fucking sense at all. Yeah. Um, so anyway, now sort of jumping forward again. So after the uh, security intervention uh, and interviews to ascertain whether or not I was actually a security risk or security threat by attending this conference, and uh, as it turned out, I was, I was actually allowed to go. So, yeah, we went to this national conference in... Yeah, it was called Wicca 89. So uh, in 1989, it was a, a national conference of witches. Mm. And at the conference, we had a market day on a, on a week, like a Sunday-type day type thing. And one of the market stalls, this guy was selling fifth fats or corn dollies. And uh, I remember one of the girls what? was talking to him, conversation for a while. I was like, hey, what are you doing? Said, I'm a born-again Christian. And we were like, um, you know, what this conference is, you know, like, or, you know, you're making corn dollies, fifth bats for, for and you're a born-again Christian. And I was like, yeah, you know, dollar's a dollar. <laughs> Wait, these. what's a corn dolly? Um, Wicker Man. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. On a, okay. On a smaller scale. Right. So it's like what wheat type stuff woven Sympathetic magic. I wasn't sure if you were talking about a, a little trinket or a, a food or something, but yeah, okay. Yeah, so did, like in the shape of, of an anatomical sort of shape, yeah. Yeah. Um, like sympathetic magic, fifth-ath is what you call, like a voodoo doll, the actual term is, is fifth-ath in Celtic. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and there was this born-again Christian that made them. He actually weaved them, made them himself, and was selling them to witches. He was born again. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's a dollar. It's a, it's a, I'm going to make my living. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's so, not judging you too harshly then. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, belief is, is fluid. And I, when I was with this particular coven for, geez, I don't really even know how long, years and years, um, but I went through the degrees and I was actually the high priest Again, for three, four years. I mean, I'll be 53 next month. I'm, I'm trying to, like, fit this space into years. I, so if I'm out a year or two on something, that's why. It's like I've, sometimes I think I've got way more memories than, than physically fit into the, the physical time that I've been here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was your role as the, as the high priest? So at full moons, new moons, festivals. Uh, I mean, you've got the S-Bats, so every full moon, 13 full moons in a solar year, uh, and then you've got the major festivals, like, you know, Belta, like, you know, the solstices, the equinoxes, and, and mm. the other four sorts of yeah, celebration of, of gods and goddesses uh, mm -hmm. based on whether you were working an Egyptian ritual or Celtic ritual or whatever ritual, the gods and goddesses' names all changed and 
so forth. But essentially, it was nature worship. Again, different people's beliefs. You know, you just when you're in a certain level of belief, you assume that everyone else's belief is the same as your belief. But again, in hindsight, you realise the fluidity within that. My recognition, like the gods and goddesses' names, were you know, not as physical separate entities, but ways of being able to, through law and storytelling, mm -hmm. pass on essential knowledge of nature in a way that can be remembered. And the easiest way to do that is to create characters. And so mm -hmm. a lot of the, the mythical god and goddess names are simply for a way to uh, anthropomorphize knowledge in, in, in storytelling. And so it didn't matter to me with, you know, whether we were working Egyptian, Babylonian, Celtic, Nordic, it made no difference. It was just, I recognised it at that point, it was all just energy. So mm. as a third degree initiate, so your first degree is like is witch, second degree is priest, priestess, third degree, high priest, high priestess. So mm. you would facilitate, if you like, the actual ritual. Um, so the, I guess the, the main role of the third degrees was, was to cast, cast the circle, raise the cone of energy, Sprinkles on earth and water where they are cast, let no evil power last. You know, that kind of sprinkling salt water. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, the actual building up the, the dome of the, of the magical circle. Fair enough. So the magic circle is, is domed. Uh, I guess, like a, a comparative, like with the uh, flat earth or geocentric theory, that you have the yeah. disc with the dome. Well, that's what a magic circle is. It's not just the circle, it is domed. So the energy that you raise and create is trapped inside the dome so when you see like we get through trance state or uh, holding hands and going around faster and faster mm -hmm. so which is which is ruined is a, a a rhyming sort of chant if you like mantra that we we keep calling out as we, we dance around faster and faster and faster and faster and faster to the point where you, know, you literally fall over but you're just raising energy through trance state and that's trapped within the dome and then that energy will be utilized for a ritualistic purpose Later on in the night. Hmm. So it's like it all builds up in the one place, and then and then yes. later you release it. It's kind of a yes. sexual yes. thing in yes. a way. Yeah. I think a lot of people would have the conception that a coven like that would be doing spells for for something, but it it kind of sounds like it it wasn't focused on necessarily changing the external world or something. It was more about. In your internal experience, like getting into the feeling of, of a certain archetype or, or God or whatever. Well, again, this goes back to like I just mentioned, that that was my mindset and my belief. Uh -huh. uh, and at the time, I would have assumed that everyone else thought the same way I didn't, but people don't always say, who knows really why, why some other people. I and mean, we used to have a, a session called Out of Court, to expand the group, there'd be ads in the paper or so forth and you'd come you know, for new people and you would interview them, initially just one or two, and then you'd invite them to a social gathering where other coven members would be present, but the new, the seeker would not be aware that other people present were coven members or so forth and would be sussed out because they would have to be approved even before that they would be initiated or allowed in. Mm -hmm. And, oh, yeah, we used to get some fucking crackpots coming along wanting to come <laughs> for various reasons. It's like, eh, that's not what we're about. Right. Yeah. When, 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 when what were their motivations? Uh, orgies, sacrificing, uh. and magic power, uh, ego, very 
a right. lot of uh, reason people come is, is purely on a power-based ego type thing, whereas yeah. really what, what you're doing is, is serving. Uh, you're, mm. you're a facilitator of, of divine energy and flow. So it's complete opposite, and uh, but yeah, you just you got to you filter out as many people as you can. But you know, some get in, and after you know, mm. some might last six months to a year, and they realise that you know, they're not going to be able to turn their ex into a toad or uh, whatever. They just disappear. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they probably could use what they learnt and, and twist it around. And obviously, you left that organisation years ago but it sounds like you still have positive feelings about it you don't you don't have any harsh judgments on it no it was just i mean it's it was a stepping stone isn't even really right word that i'm looking for because yeah. that that suggests a hierarchical lower level which it wasn't right but, it's just part of the exposure to to new concepts new mm. ideas mm. yeah new realities to to You've got to do to experience. You can read about something, but to actually do is a very different fact. Mm. Use that as a step into uh, the magical or like with my time in the OTO. Uh, there was a couple of people that I, in fact, still friends with to this day that we actually used to, to do magical work together. But majority of, of people attracted to magical orders, it's was all about ego. We used to call them armchair magicians. Right. Instead of actually doing a meditative or ritualistic thing, you would just sit around and talk about what Alistair Crowley thought. Alistair Crowley said this. No, no, what he meant was this. No, 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 clearly he meant this. Right. It was just a a circle jerk um, pretty much. Um, Yeah, I guess you get those kind of people in just about every discipline that, (laughs) that exists. Yeah. yeah, I definitely learned a lot more from, from the craft than I did in, in the magical ceremonial magician type aspect. Admittedly, uh-huh. I didn't go that far. I only went a couple of degrees into the OTO, but it was far enough to, to, for me just to know that it wasn't the direction I wanted to go in. And it was okay. way too so much. So you think that uh, the OTO had a lot more egotistical people than, than the, the coven? Yeah. The, the, I think just the um, label of uh, magician uh, yeah. Is more appealing to the ego than than a witch. Yeah, a witch definitely sounds more more humble, more earthy. Mm. Yeah, and the robes. Oh God, like ceremonial robes. A lot more circle jerking going on in, in, in the <laughs> ego realm of of magic than than in the low. Because that, that, that's high magic as opposed to low magic. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 but wait, ego. what is what is the distinction? High magic honest, and low magic. I, I think it's just ego fellatio. <laughs> okay. okay. I, I remember uh, Anton Sander LeVay makes this distinction where he says, I think he says greater magic and lesser magic. But lesser magic is like perception management, like I'm going to dress in this way so people perceive me. It's like marketing, I suppose. And greater magic was just the ritual stuff. And I guess a lot of the ritual in, in the magic magical waters is around the invocation of entities. They used to entity lightly uh, because who, who knows what you're playing with. Uh, and quite often you could even be manifesting your own ego 
manifesting yeah. own ego physically into the external environment. Hmm. But it just, yeah, it just had that attraction that was a magician doesn't serve, a magician should be served type thing, whereas the craft <laughs> is like a priest serves. You know? Right. So, yeah, oh, I mean, yeah, nice. within the craft, your, your title is priest or priestess. Within the magical world, your title is magician, high magician, lord magician, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So when you, when you entered the coven, were people skeptical of you because you were a military man? Not really, because through the time in there, like, I... Develop, I mean, I, the psychic that I told you about from, that was recommended to me, I went for tarot readings. Like, uh, we had developed a friendship to the point before I even knew that she was a high priestess of the color. Like, I that see. was not revealed to me initially. So, but by the time that I was invited to join, I, I was, had already been sussed out. Hmm. Yeah, pre approved. My first position yeah. within the color. Is, was a title which is called Man in Black, uh, and the Man in Black is like, um, I guess, security. For, oh. um, so everyone else in the company might be working sky cloud, the Man in Black remains in black cloak, um, simply for, for the ability to, to blend into the darkness. Uh -huh. Even though like a lot of the ritual was done on private property, there were certain places, uh, like, for example, up in the hills of Raleigh Stone, um, ancient uh, indigenous sacred sites that definitely had like, like rock formation power areas we would we would go and do some ritual there so you'd have to be aware of the public and also the man in black was the person that brought you near for or initiates to the circle blindfolded for the first time before they were actually initiated okay so and i guess you know, the, the military sort of background and martial arts background as well type thing was like mm -hmm. people liked that i had that background for that role yeah, makes sense. So did you ever have to restrain someone or, you know, hold back a member of the public? Nothing ever happened? No. no. Okay. Well, good. I mean, you think too, like, you know, if, you, if you're a member of the public and you, went, you, you came across a bunch of people doing a ritual on full moon, like, you would probably really want to, you probably want to stick around. <laughs> 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 I might watch and ask them afterwards what, what was going yeah, that's, on. Yeah, that's, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because who knows? Yeah, Isaac Bonowitz talks about this. I read this book, Real Magic, and he talks about when pe people have coven wars. So they're like, there's two covens in a city, and one is pointing the finger at the other, you know, they're each pointing their fingers and saying, they're evil, they're doing black magic. And, and so they get caught up doing these rituals trying to fight each other and it's just a big you know waste of time did you ever see anything like that happen um not really i mean anything on that level would have been purely egos but you know, yeah. our coven is better than their coven our yeah. coven can be traced back to their generation our coven is this and they're they're just that hmm. um again, ego type stuff so but, even in the oto you didn't see that kind of war behavior no i mean i was only i mean i traveled to, to melbourne for my actually went, i traveled to adelaide for my second degree initiation but i met members from melbourne in adelaide and then got a lift to melbourne and met more melbourne people so i only really knew three 
groups at mm. the time within the, the, the Perth, the Adelaide and the Melbourne and mm -hmm. only you know, some of the people in those groups. Um, so I really don't know what was going on outside of my own group, but I don't know, I just never, even in the early stages, like I, I knew I wasn't gonna be there, but it was just, I knew it wasn't my thing. Fair enough. So it's more of a, like curiosity level, like yeah, what what is it about? Yeah. Um, but well, I think what I've discovered was that most of the people in it don't know what it's about. So. <laughs> All right. So, so, yeah. I was going to ask you what's what's the ideal behind it, but it sounds like there isn't any. It's like they they just want to get together and do this armchair discussions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was lost. If there was something in it, it was lost on me. <laughs> Yeah, I just okay. was never really attracted that much to it. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So, so actually, one thing I did notice there was a, a commonality. A lot of members were ex Masons, oh. so they tried Masonry and then left Masonry to go to OTO. That was hmm. one thing I remember as, as being interesting. The ego is too big for Freemasonry, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> much was lost on me. <laughs> Okay, so maybe there was something going today, on. There. I had two yeah. very good friends to this day from um, that. that, that we, we shared commonality base and we, we actually used to, to catch up socially and we would actually do uh -huh. real work. I mean, in, in the OTO or Magic Book, they talk about the great work. And hmm. again, I don't think anyone really knows what the great work is, but the great work <laughs> or the alchemy is, is personal self development. Right. Um, yeah, well, Crowley sometimes describes it as contacting your personal angel or something like that. Yeah, there's the there's that, but um, it's the, the transformation of self of of realization was what my personal take on it of the yep. great work. The, the true alchemy is is the transformation of the self. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. So that's actually part one of the interview. There's a second part still to come where Bob shares some more information about the organizations he was involved with and his own personal perspective. Remember to follow Bob on Steemit and also check out Cryptonomics, Principles of Cryptocurrency and Investing. Follow on YouTube, Cryptonomics on YouTube, Cryptonomics on Facebook and on Steemit at Cryptonomics1. Thanks so much again. I'll talk to you soon.